Welcome to New Home Insights, the podcast from John Burns Research and Consulting. I'm your host, Dean Worley. If you want to follow market trends, demographics, capital, new ideas, and endeavors that touch on housing, we're going to try to make sense of that every couple of weeks. Let's go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the New Home Insights podcast. This is Dean Worley, the podcast of the John Burns Research and Consulting Company. Today, we're going to bring you something a little bit different, as we try to do, but still very much housing market related. We're going to talk to Stephanie Casper. She's the Chief Revenue Officer at Kiavi. Kiavi is a nationwide tech-enabled lender for residential investors. It does both short-term and longer-term loan packages. And really, the, the bulk of their clientele is kind of your classic flip, fix and flippers, but also your longer-term single-family rental investors. We're going to get into that more with uh, Stephanie right now. Stephanie, how are you? Hi, Dean. I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you could be here. We like to, this is something you know, a little bit different than we uh, typically do, which is good. And But we are going to talk a little bit about the market. We're going to talk a lot about what you guys do and what what's going on with that fix, fix and flip space, which has become a huge space, as well as the single family investor space, also a major, major part of the housing world these days. Let's start with the basics. Give us that classic, you know, elevator pitch of what Kiavi does, and then give us a little bit of background on you and how you came to be where you are now. So, uh, so Kiavi is a tech-enabled lender. We're almost ten years old, uh, and we have been lending to residential investors since inception in late 2013. We leverage our proprietary technology as well as in-house data models and machine learning models and AI to make the process of borrowing money for the purposes of investing in residential real estate simpler and faster for our customers, as well as making the process internally more streamlined to better enable our decision-making throughout that origination process. Uh, We've originated over 50,000 loans since inception, getting closer and closer to 60,000 here now. So we have massive data sets that we're able to use uh, for the, the development and continued learning from from those models, and um, you know even bigger sets of data for loans that maybe we didn't actually complete yeah. or 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 go through with just for a variety of reasons. You know, uh, things fall out of the process. And I think you have a, a national footprint. Where are you? We do. Are you in almost every state? I mean, how many states are you in right now? We are. We're in twenty nine states, um, and we're probably going to expand to a couple more, but. Um, yeah. For the most part, yeah, we're in 29 today. All the big ones. All the big ones. That's right. <laughs> I looked at the right. map. I would say our, our footprint is um, covers, I, I think, 90 percent of of all uh, residential housing transactions. Yeah, the places where people would expect it. Certainly, those those classic smile states for sure. The places where there's lots of of housing activity going on, as you'd expect. Correct. That's correct. So, yeah. okay. So that's Kiavi. And like I say, we're going to get into a lo- lots more specifics about what you do and, and, and who you are and also the markets that you work in and what you're seeing in those markets. But first of all, just give us a little bit about you, Stephanie. How did you, how did you get here to Kiavi in 2023? Sure. So I took a little bit of a circuitous route in getting to uh, the lending side of the real estate world. Uh, my first love for, from a real estate asset class is the hotel space. I went to the Cornell Hotel School for undergrad and started my career in the hotel industry um, and then went back to school uh, to get a graduate degree in real estate, um, in in real estate development and finance. And so worked in a variety of areas, uh, predominantly on the equity side. And then through connections and relationships over time, had an opportunity to uh, join a lender, one of our competitor lenders in 2015, uh, to run the bridge lending business there, mm-hmm. um, and and so I joined there in 2015. At uh, call, it was Colony American Finance at the time, is now Corbest, uh, and and helped grow the bridge lending platform there. Launched a few products, uh, including infill um, and build for rent construction and multifamily um, bridge there. And then um, had the opportunity to join what was Lending Home uh, at the time in uh, the January of 2020. Uh, and so we rebranded in November of 2021, but I've been with with Kiavi since then and, and have really uh, loved the opportunity uh, and, and the growth has been, has been really interesting to see over the last three and a half years. 
I meant to ask you a second ago, where does the name Kiavi come from? Is there is oh, a, sure. a meaning for it, of it? Yeah, there actually is. It is the phonetic representation of the Italian word for key, which is Chiavi, oh, spelled okay. differently, obviously. And and yeah. so uh, that it's it has a little bit of a meaning, even though I think uh, sometimes people don't understand what it what where the word came from. But that's where it does came the from. actual does the actual Italian word have a Q? Start with a Q. No, it's a C H I A V E, I believe. Yeah. So I think for a while there it was a law that all new companies had to have a Q and a Z. At least one of those two letters in their name. It's it's a rule for a while. But really? I'm glad, I'm glad you. Doesn't it seem like it? So many keys. It does. And Z's. This is a fair point. Fair point. Everything yeah. and everything. It does have to be misspelled. That's also a rule. I think. I feel like <laughs> it's it's interesting. There's a conference that I uh, participate in, and for I was on a panel, and they had the Piabi spelled wrong in my email address, so I never got any of the oh. notifications. It was, oh. it's like a little bit madness. So. <laughs> But uh, the rebranding is always an adventure, but it's worked out quite well. True. We're going through that right now. The let's start with the fix and flip part of it before we go on to the uh, single family rental investor type. So the fix and flip has become a, just a a massive part of the market. Do you have a sense? I mean, let's start talking about the market before we go into the kind of services you provide there, but let's start, let's start really basic. How do you define a flipper? Is that a, what is the time horizon that you define? What, a, what it means to be a fix and flip? Well, I think there's a lot of debate about what's considered a flip transaction, but yeah. I, I will say the way that we tend to look at it is when the, uh, the ownership ch- changes hands within tw- a 12 month period uh, from the first purchase to the exit, so or, or purchase to exit. So, right, an owner occupant purchase is going to be much more longer term, yeah. right? So we look for the purchase transaction and then the exit transaction to be yeah. within a 12-month period. 12 that, month that's period. Okay. the typical, I think, uh, that's kind of customary way that that the data is looked at. I, th- I think yeah. that- I, I'm pretty sure you it, all look at it that way too. That's exactly, I'm almost positive that that's how it is. If I'm wrong, Devin and Rick are going to strangle me, but I'm pretty sure that's exactly how we measure it as well. You I'm look for those sure. two purchases yeah. within a 12-month period. So yeah. what is your sense? Do you have a sense? Do you measure the total size of that? Do you have a sense of what like the market share is for fix and flippers in your markets? Um, the total addressable market, the way we see it for um, like short-term financing in the residential space hmm. in 2023 is- about 35-ish billion is our expectation in 2023, um, growing over the next few years to close to 40 billion. And revenue within revenue within the sector as a whole, is that what you mean by that measure? No, I'm talking about transaction, volume of transactions. Mm -hmm. So like total dollars of transactions. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's what I meant, okay. And, um, and Kiabi in in the markets in which we uh, participate, because we're not in every single market, but uh, yeah. we we have a little bit north of about eleven percent market share today. Okay, okay, so it's a big chunk yeah. of your business, and it's a big chunk of the market too. That's right, that's right. I and mean, you know, depending on who you ask and whose research you follow, including the John Burns research, which I love, um, it, it's typically I, I just saw I think twenty twenty three so far eighteen percent of uh, existing home sales this year have been to investors. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a, a flip, right? It could be somebody that's buying for the purposes of holding as a rental. But uh, 18% is pretty high. That's that's higher than last year. Um, and I'm sorry, it's, it's a little bit lower than last year. Last year was about 20% higher than pre-pandemic levels, which was sort of yeah. in the 16% range. Yeah. And that number can even go higher too. There are lots of markets with a quarter of the transactions being defined as some form of investor. But it's, it's important to say that because the flippers are a, a subset of that and a minority subset of that. Most of those folks are, are more traditional investors. Where Again, sticking with the, that flipper part of the market segment, are there geographic breakdowns of where your business among for specifically flippers as opposed as opposed to longer term loans are higher and lower. In other words, I'm I'm making this up, but is the Southeast kind of a hotbed for flippers or, or Texas? On you see markets that are more flipper oriented than others. Um, it really depends, and and to be 
to be truthful, I I look at bridge lending or short-term loans, um, it kind of as a whole, not just for the the specific execution of a flip to a, okay. an owner-occupant. I think about um, purchase, rehab, reposition, so to speak, all, all kind of as the same. And then whatever the exit strategy is, is, is it a flip or is it a refinance to yeah. um, a longer-term hold rental? I would say rental investments are going to be better yielding in markets mm. where home values are not quite as aggressive as they are in places like California, right? Okay. Like the, so, so that's where I see some, some differences. It, it's really going to depend. Um, I, I think there's a ton of flipping activity that happens in California. There's tons in Florida. There's yeah. tons in Texas. There's tons. I mean, the, the, the East Coast corridor, call it like DC North, ripe for that opportunity. And, and the reason I say that is the the median home age or the median age of homes in the US is like 40 plus years. It's mm. a Carter era, Carter administration That's era it. home, right? And if you think about where the homes are more aged, it's sort of in that kind of corridor up the yeah. East Coast. Um, ripe for flipping activity because mm. to reposition a home that's that age is expensive. It's not mm. what an entry level or first time home buyer is equipped to do from like a skill set perspective, much less yeah. financially, right? And so flipping in those markets is also very, very attractive because of uh, the values that could be achieved on the exit, as well as just like the age of the homes. There's like a necessity to yeah. uh, sort of reposition that aging housing stock. That makes the fixed part of the fix and flip all the more critical, doesn't it? It does. It does. And I think that's a really important element of of fixing and flipping, right? It's that this whole idea that we have this aging housing stock in the U.S., um, you have the millennials out as like first time home buyers today, not necessarily wanting to take on a, a, a rehab project. I think there was an article last week or the week before that said, uh, nobody wants to buy a fixer upper today was like the mm. headline on it, right? Then saying move in ready homes are very desirable. And in many cases, seeing multiple offers at or above ask price in many markets across the U.S., Whereas homes that need some updating are sitting longer. And 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 that just sort of speaks to, I think, what uh, flippers can do in terms of delivering more move-in ready housing stock to, you know, the next generation of home buyers, even in this interest rate environment. Now, here's a, another part of the environment, though, that we have is a much more limited resale inventory landscape, existing homes yep. that are listed because of all these golden handcuffs from low interest rates. That's are right. you finding? Are your clients finding it harder to find homes they could buy, fix, and flip? You know, it's a very interesting dynamic. I would say um, existing home sale transaction volume is down 41 percent uh, in Q one. We're waiting for the Q two data to big. I'm assuming it's going to be relatively similar year over year, right? And that is because people are locked in their houses or locked into their mortgages. I would say. I think. The statistic I just heard is that like 90% of all mortgages in the U.S. are below 6%, right? Today, rates are above yeah. that. Um, and the other statistic is something like 62% of, of, of owner-occupied mortgages are 4% or lower, yeah. right? So people are not moving unless they have to for some reason. There's no trading up at the moment. And, and so that's really driven down transaction volumes. Yeah. Um, what I think is very interesting is that, yes, the supply of inventory has come down from a resale perspective, but there's not as much competition on the on the buy side because interest rates are so much higher. People have been priced out potentially. So flippers aren't necessarily competing as hard yeah. for the same homes. Okay. Um, and you're also seeing that buyers are outnumbering sellers. That that was in the agent survey from, from okay. y'all's research. Um, and so there, there is that sort of tension in the market. It's a good thing for flippers, though, assuming they can leverage their networks, which many of them do, to find those off-market listings and so forth. Yeah. They're still able to get in, 
reposition that property and exit at really attractive levels, um, even in this dynamic. And so while overall transaction volume is down, we are seeing you know a lot of strength from our our customers across the spectrum of, of customer cohorts um, after what was probably a pretty quiet Q4 for m- most people there was a lot of uh, kind of waiting and seeing how things were going to translate and getting back in sort of in, in Q1 and so that's really uh, borne out I think for for all of us in the competitive landscape here. Tell me if this question is unfair, but I've always been fascinated by the who of the who the flippers are. If I had a twin brother, I'd be the guy in the suit, not the guy in the, I think, sometimes never before worn work shirt because I would hurt myself immediately on a work site. Um, although I don't like suits either, but still, uh, I, I could I could never do it. Who is it? Is it is it all people with these these skills, these labor skills and the ability, or is it are they partnering with with brokers who have those inside information that you just mentioned? What kind of what is the the flavor of the people who are doing this? Yeah, so I think about the customers or our customers as broken up into kind of three buckets. Um, the majority of them, well, I shouldn't say the majority of them. Two out of the three buckets. <laughs> are um, are really small business owners, and in some cases, okay. very large business owners. You know, as you move further up that food chain, um, yeah. and and they, so so, we have on one end, kind of people like us, right? We're, we are tangentially in the real estate space, um, and maybe it's your brother that you mentioned is a GC, yeah. and his wife is uh-huh. a realtor. And the house down the street from where you grew up, they had to put, you know, the, the, they're selling the home, the the neighbor was moved to a retirement home, whatever the case may be, it needs to be updated. You know the market, you know the area, there's some expertise. And so you opportunistically go ahead and, and do this, right? That That is what we consider kind of like first timers, people like us, very opportunistic. It's almost an infinite customer base. Every day there's a new person that's going to go do that. They might not do yeah. more than one, right? Yeah. But every day there's somebody new assessing that opp- opportunity. On the opposite end of the spectrum, I mentioned the small, maybe slightly large business owner. That's this vertically integrated real estate company that has contractors on staff, construction in-house, design in-house. They probably have a brokerage or agent, you know, realtor business. They might own a franchise or, or an office of one of the title and escrow companies. Uh, and so they're really just like kind of churning through this business model and they're pivoting based on what's happening in the markets and and the economy in terms of, are they going to just flip? Are they going to own rentals? Are they going to do ground up construction opportunistically because it makes more sense than competing with a whole bunch of p- yeah. potential home buyers during the frenzy of 2020? the second half of 2020 through kind of first half of last year, right? And so they, they're able to pivot and and, and, and their strategy uh, kind of goes along with that. And then you have this middle sector who or this middle group where they've quit their day jobs. They probably have some relationships with a couple, three GCs that they rely on in their market. They probably have a couple agents with whom they have very good relationships for the purposes of finding properties and selling their properties once they're ready. And and this is like a dream that they are now living because they investing in real estate a little by little yeah. has now enabled them to no longer have an office job, but now they're out there um, kind of managing this small business. So that's really who the flipper landscape can look like. Okay. Um, so it's a little bit of everything. They're not all on television. Are any of your no. clients on TV? <laughs> Most of them are not on television. <laughs> any, do, do you have any clients that have, have a, a TV show? Uh, yes. So why not? How, how, we you do. do? We kidding. have a few. Yeah. Nope. Oh, I'm not nice. kidding you. Okay. I was uh, going to be angry if you didn't because it's kind of a low bar. I'm not going to lie. You know, <laughs> it. I think what, what people, it's great entertainment, right? As somebody yeah. that loves real estate and loves to see the before and afters and knows that yeah. like all the things that actually are going to go wrong can go wrong. Um, but what I think is hard is that it, it can often make it look really easy. Yeah. Right. And and it's, you know, investing in real estate is not for the faint of heart. And you need to be sort of uh, expecting something to go wrong and being ready yeah. for that. And I think, you know, 
one of the things that I think we do really well is set up, especially first time flippers or first time investors uh, for success, because we we have kind of a, a pretty defined process. We, we help our customers um, understand the feasibility of whatever scope of work they they're proposing to do. We help them think through, is that an over-improvement? Are they going to get the value for the home that they think they're going to? And, and, and really try to help them down the path of a successful outcome. Because the last thing I want to do is own real estate as a lender. I mean, yeah. personally, I want to own real estate, yeah. but as a lender, I don't, I'm, that's not my business. I want to see our customers succeed. And that is something we really focus on and, and I think do a very good job with all of the data resources that I mentioned earlier to set them up for best outcomes. Um, because it's not as simple as it looks on TV. <laughs> Oh, that's gonna, the best outcome, though, is getting a TV show. Let's be honest. Yeah, <laughs> pays well, and you just snap, and suddenly the after shows up. I, I know. I know. It's magical. There's there have been some oh, not great articles in the media lately about some almost predatory behavior from some of these companies with fi fix and flip. Does that worry you? Do you do you have constraints within Kiabi that could uh, not not lead you down that road and not work with those folks? Yeah, look, you know, we're always assessing um, how our customers are behaving, right? Like, I, we don't want to work with dirt bags, right? Yeah. Um, I, I don't really know. I'm glad if to hear that. Like, if there's a more PC way of saying that, right? That's a good one. That's, um, we, that's, we, that's fine. We, we believe in sort of the mission of helping people sort of revitalize the aged housing stock, deliver yeah. move-in ready uh, condition homes, updating homes out to the market. And one 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 thing that I think is important to note about uh, Kiabi's customers is like our median exit price year to date is about $100,000 less than the median home price in the US. Oh, okay. And so what we're what our customers are doing are not, you know, all these luxury homes, yeah. they're delivering like entry-level home prices, right? Yeah. To first-time buyers. Um, and and that's, I think that that's like really something that motivates us and, and is part of our ethos in, in terms of company mission, right? Is this sort of revitalizing America's age housing stock, helping solve the move-in ready housing inventory problem, all, all of these things. Um, the the predatory buyers and 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 those stories around sort of Main Street being swallowed up by Wall Street and and all of that mm. like doesn't doesn't help any of our our cause right and so we we take a good hard look at backgrounds performance um, we we've banned customers for doctoring paperwork because mm. we consider that to be fraud yeah. right and so um, there are mechanisms in place for us to try to avoid being in, in bed with, you know, unsavory characters. It's not to say that it doesn't sometimes happen, but we, we do our best to avoid that headline risk. That's good. That's good news. I also like that that the entry level niche is that niche that needs needs to be most served. So that that's great as well. Last question on fix and flip before we turn it over to single family investors is what kind of return typically are your fix and flip clients looking for when they go into a deal? Oh, I think it really depends. And everybody has kind of a different hurdle. Yeah. And, and part of it is a function of their cost of capital, right? Like what do they need to hit their preferred returns or pay their their equity partners, right? And pay their debts back. So I think it, it really depends. I will say that we want to see a minimum 10% when we're doing an underwrite um, okay. of, of a deal for, for a prospective customer. But that's very thin, right? Yeah. All of that said, ten percent on a million dollar deal versus ten percent on a hundred thousand dollar deal, you know, it, it is wildly different. Um, but that's our base underwrite. Okay. Well, actually, I misspoke a second ago. Before we go on to single family investment and what you do there, let's sure. talk about what you do for the fix and flip. So, what are the core services? We've kind of touched on it, but what are the core services that you bring to these potential customers in the fix and flip space? Yeah. So, so we offer 
you know, acquisition financing up to, we, we can, in some cases, up to 100% of purchase price for certain very seasoned, you know, super experienced customers that have a really solid track record with us. And we finance the renovation um, pro, uh, budget as well. Uh, most of, we prefer to do 100% of the renovation budget. And so um, mm-hmm. we will, a customer can come into our website and size and price their loan right then, yeah. get an instant quote. Of course, that's all subject to underwriting and diligence and confirmation of all the things that you would expect um, a lender to go through. Um, but we don't look at um, financial statements, tax returns, W, yeah, not W-2s, but pay stubs. We're, we are mm-hmm. more interested in the potential value of the property and the project specifically versus the sponsor and their financial capability um, with the exception of, you know, we want to make sure that the customer has a good credit score because it's the yeah. most predictive of performance. Like it or not, it just is. And then um, we want to check backgrounds, right? We want to make sure, like I mentioned earlier, we're not working with a dirt bag. Yeah. Um, so those things related to the the sponsor themselves, but then everything else is very much focused on the property and the project. And so we leverage um, an in-house, a few in-house models, one of which is a property risk score where the address and a whole host of other factors generates a, a risk score. And, and with that score, we can help tweak leverage if necessary. If it's higher risk, we can offer higher leverage if it's a much lower risk pro- property. And we can make those nuanced adjustments so that we're not having to like, uh, most, most lenders have to go like cut leverage across the board right? If they need to skinny down leverage, we can be very surgical in those decisions using these risk scores. So we'll we'll also kind of educate the customer about it too. Many of our super prolific customers want to understand, well, wait, it's come in at a high risk. Why? Like what what are the factors? Like help me understand because I want to be a better, I want to make sure that my execution is going to be set up for success too. Um, So we'll, we'll offer up some of that information as well, just to help with the process. You're kind of helping them learn that business through pointing that's out right. where, okay, here's where there might be a weakness. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, look, we can all, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing something. There's always some morsel you can learn from somebody else from time to time. And I think our customers, I, I think, are very thirsty for that kind of in, additional information and, and insights. Very true. I feel like we have made dirtbagging to a technical term within the housing sector today. And I, it's a technical proud term in real estate for sure. Absolutely. As it should be. <laughs> what is, um, you mentioned, so typically that one year uh, buy sell is kind of that, I, it's how we measure these fix and flippers. What is your typical time period? Is it shorter than that? Yeah, our average, uh, our, our average turn is a little north of six months. Um, it, it's, it's uh, eked out a little bit, I think, with the interest rate environment. Um, but then it it sort of bumps around, but it's usually kind of 180, 195 okay. days, somewhere in that range. And, and how short-term is short-term? How, how short of a term would you go? Oh, our shortest uh, loan amount, uh, loan term, excuse me, is 12 months. Yeah, 12 yeah. months. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But we have some folks that are really good at like getting in. They're doing primarily cosmetic rehabs, right? So they're not they're not uh, tearing down walls or yeah. reconfiguring floor plans. Um, and they are often getting in and out in 90 days in some instances, which huh. is pretty darn fast. Does that make you more nervous if they are doing something major, so, uh, you know, keeping that one wall so they don't have to get a permit kind of a thing and tearing everything else down? Does that, does that heighten your sense to see that there is the solid underwriting to that deal? Yeah. So I think, I think we want to know that they know how to do those kinds of projects, okay. right? Those really extensive renovations. Um, they do take longer. They're fraught with more problems. Um, yeah. Like lo- lots more can go wrong. Although I have gotten into debates and I may have come over to the dark side in believing that it's actually riskier to do a fix than it is to just tear down and start new or build ground up because yeah. no surprises other than the weather mm. or you know a contractor that doesn't show up but you have the contractor not showing up when you're doing a flip uh, just a That's fix um, yeah. but yeah so from an underwriting perspective and diligence perspective we're gonna we're gonna look at and understand one is what what is being proposed allowable on the site 
Mm-hmm. Is the is our customer capable of executing on this? Does does the plan make sense? Does the scope of work make sense? Do we have we seen them do these kinds of projects before? That gives us a lot more confidence. And then you know we administer and manage our 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 own loans, so we service our own loans and administer and manage our own construction draws. And so we're able to get insight and help along the way if necessary when um, how, how progress is coming along or how okay. the project is progressing. I got my words confused. Yeah. Um, and so so we're going to look at all of those things for sure. It, in some instances, it might mean we do a little bit lower leverage, um, but it, it really just depends on the project and the sponsor. What are the things that set you apart from your competitors in terms of uh, appealing to those customers? Is it the technology? Is it the ease? Is it the is it the the terms? What, are, what do you have as kind of a competitive advantage, you think? Yeah, it's it's kind of D, all of the above. Mm. I think, um, you know, the way that we are capitalized has has given us a cost of capital advantage that we've been able to pass along to our customers. And and while super prolific, really seasoned guys will will and gals for that matter, will recognize that when you are maxed at leverage at 90 or 100 percent of your cost, uh, what what that effectively means is interest rate is irrelevant, right? Mm-hmm. Because when you're doing your return calculation, your denominator is zero, right? So that basically means your return is infinite. Now I realize that that's an oversimplification, but um, but super prolific investors recognize that rate doesn't matter if I can get ninety plus percent leverage. Okay. Um, we're able to offer high leverage because we have really great risk um, processes in place and risk management processes in place such that we see wildly lower delinquencies than our competitors. Um, and that's just based on public like securitization information in terms of DQ60s and that sort of thing. But um, because we were able to do that, we we're able to offer those higher higher leverage amounts. So terms are another area where, where we have a competitive advantage. And then it is really that that tech and process um, in combination that allows for us to close uh, in five days in some instances, sometimes even less. Yeah, I, I say a lot of times people will ask, well, how quickly can you close? It's 100% dependent on the sponsor and how quickly okay. they can get their third parties to get the information you need for the lender and they're all ready yeah. and right, like answer all the questions and move forward. But um, because of, of, of the way that we've leveraged models in our tech, um, we're, we're able to just move through much more quickly. Okay. Let's switch yeah. over to the single family investor space. How, let's start with this, just pure size. How big a part is the single family investor part of your business as opposed to the fix and flip? Yeah. So we started out, um, lending only on the short term side and we launched our rental, uh, loan product in the fall of 2019. So it's newer. Uh, and is a much smaller piece of our business. It's probably 20% of our business today. Okay. Uh, I'm just looking at some math real quick. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. And so it's smaller. I- I'll tell you, though, the rental space in general dwarfs. It's yeah. it's a larger addressable market than yeah. um, the short-term flipping business um, and continues to grow. And that's largely due to the economic environment, right? Um, affordability challenges with respect to housing, whether that's interest rates or home prices, driving a lot more folks to need to, to desire rental housing. And then, you know, coming through the pandemic, more and more people were saying, oh, hold on, like, I want some space. I would, I don't want to be in a high rise apartment building. I want to rent a house with a yard and have a little room to breathe relative to my neighbors. Um, and so that we we continued to see demand for uh, rental properties uh, from from renters. Like it, mm-hmm. it conti- that demand continues to grow, and then you know by extension, investors are seeking to to invest in rental properties as well. So, and you um, see, do you see a long runway for the single family investment world to keep growing and expanding? Absolutely, absolutely, I do. Look, it. Depending on who you read, we have like a massive housing shortage in the U.S. Yeah. Right? I think at at the IMN conference when it was opened, um, I want to say the, the SVN folks said something like two million homes short 
this year in terms mm-hmm. of availability of housing. Um, and so rental properties are one way to help solve some of that, right? But because there is this shortage, um, you know, it, it, it yeah. helps sort of support the the fund or the fundamentals support investing in rental properties. Yeah, yeah a single family unit bought by an investor does not take any unit out of the housing sector because there's a lot of antagonism toward it from some folks on parts of the political spectrum. And often, especially in the fix and flip space, often it makes a somewhat inhabitable space into a much more inhabitable space, actually kind of enhances the housing stock. It, it can, so, for sure. And keep in mind. Look, yeah. One of the other things to keep in mind is, I believe the statistic is 2%, maybe a little north of 2% of all rental homes, all like single family rental properties in the US, only 2% of them are owned by owners of more than, I think it's a hundred yeah. homes, uh-huh. right? So this idea that you have like these huge institutions buying up all the houses, it's 2%, right? Um, 80% of the rental investment properties, single family rental investment properties in the US are owned by folks that own 10 or fewer, right? They're, yeah. they're small business owners. And then I think it's 60 some odd percent are owned by folks that own five or less, right? It's mom and pops. It's people investing for their retirement part. You know, it, it, it's not this sort of greed fueled yeah. uh, uh, investment strategy Large that I think it gets positioned as yeah. in the media. Like you said, Wall Street buying over Main Street. That's not what's happening. We, we've been publishing it's, those stats as well. It's a small right. single digit that is a large institutional investor. Yeah, and then even that's a, right. still a single digit that is a sort of decent size, you know, 50, 100. That's, that, even that is still a relatively small part of the picture. For sure. And I think that, um, you know, there there's some some debate around like the build for rent communities, like purpose built, that, that that's being mm-hmm. very heavily driven by like institutional, right? And so they're yeah. adding housing stock and increasing their ownership up as a percentage, right? So does that mm-hmm. shift over time to two and a half or three percent? Maybe. Um maybe not. Maybe it, it does. To be but seen. like you said, they're adding housing stock. They're making uh, that bottom number bigger. That's um, right. For That's you right. for what you guys do for your customers, for your single family investor customers, do they tend to be the onesie twosies, the mom and pops? Or do you have semi-institutional? Do you have the folks who are kind of mid-size as well? Yeah, we have. Like I said, kind of that 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 three buckets again. We have mm-hmm. have folks that are have one, two, five maybe, uh, and they're doing single asset loans with us. We have institutional guys that are doing portfolios uh, of rental loans with us as well, and sort of everybody in between. Uh, we have a very large repeat customer cohort um, in both our bridge space as well as in, in the rental space. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Folks come and do those loans with us, whether it's on the bridge side and then they refinance to rental or they come in and and they just continue to kind of stick with us because I think they, well, my belief is that they they like our process. They like who they're working with. The the technology helps make things more transparent. And so it's just not so much of a black box. Um, How how big is big? Do you have folks who say, hey, I want to buy these 50 homes, 100 homes. They're, you know, they're, uh, non-contiguous addresses, but do, do you get that kind of size portfolio that they're looking for? We do. We do. We have, uh, I, I kind of consider those um, uh, those types of investors sort of aggregators, right? And so oftentimes they're using yeah. our short-term financing to buy and stabilize. Maybe there's some deferred maintenance that needs to happen. They need to re-tenant, whatever the case may be. And then they're going to take chunks of 25 to 50 at a time and refinance those into into the the bigger portfolio loans. We have not uh, our portfolio product is a little on the newer side as well. It's it's only a couple years old. We have not graduated to like the really big institutional types of loans like the Corvests of the world will do okay. for portfolio yet. But uh, I I it would envision you know w- we'll potentially get there. Yeah. So, what kind of uh, timeline are these folks now thinking? I know you're you're relatively new to the SFR investment, but I, I'm assuming they're they're thinking in terms of years, not months. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So so most of them are like five, seven, ten year, um, ten year terms with thirty year 
amortizations. Um, We also do a 30-year fixed as well. Um, And so it's sort of a combination, just kind of depends on on their investor horizon. They all also have a variety of prepayment penalty options that step down um, and that can enhance, you know, their flexibility to if markets change, right, and and they're able to exit, the return makes more sense for them to do that versus hold as a rental in a couple of few years or interest rates come wildly down. Let's knock wood that that happens. Doesn't feel like it's in the in the near future um but so to to give that optionality but yeah they're looking much longer term than that five years is the minimum term do you expect them to for sure have an exit plan though five years seven years ten years or could they just be no indefinitely as long as this thing's making money yeah so um they'll they'll either have to refinance into you know a new just depending on the term of the loan um or you know, for for folks that have a thirty year, they have a lot of a lot of runway. But yeah. um, I don't necessarily expect them to have an exit in terms of getting out of the properties. It just kind of depends on their investment horizon, um, especially on okay. like the institution, the more institutional, right? That they're they've often raised funds that have a certain horizon where they'll have to exit or um, or you know pay back their their equity partners. And you're not locating or helping them find product, correct? These that's on them. You're helping them with, with the financing only. Is that correct? That's right. You know, I think I think we have we we have aspirations. I I would think most lenders do, for that matter, of finding more ways to provide greater services to our customer base, right? And if if the opportunity arises for sharing properties or pointing them in a direction. Um, you know, that's something I think we would be super open to. It's just not something we do today. Okay. Yep. Um, let's walk through the math. You kind of started to, to do it a minute ago, but I, I, I want to kind of understand, I know this is kind of a, a, something that you're passionate about, is the math behind real estate investing, the kind of capital that's needed for, for this, the right things and wrong things to do in a deal. Walk us through that from your perspective. So I think what's most important to think about with investing in residential properties, whether you're going to fix and flip it or you're going to hold it as a rental property, is that it has to be unemotional, right? Most people, when they're buying a home to live in, it's a very emotional purchase. And even though it's a house, (laughs) as an investor, you can't allow that emotion to come into play. And so what I believe is the most important thing to to think through is start with what is the return you want to get on your cash that's in the deal and 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 start there. And then as you find properties to assess, you're going to look at all the costs associated with buying, fixing, holding that property in some cases. If it's a rental, what is going to be the cash in, in like the cash inflows? And and putting that equation together to make a determination on does it hit your investment threshold, your return on on your invested capital, right? It's a business decision. It's a it's a quick and dirty Excel fight, you know, model that you can build. And then anytime you're making that purchase decision, you're using that model to back into how much are you willing to pay given what you know or think you're going to put into it if you need to put anything into it in order to hit that return threshold and and just really kind of stick to that math. Um, the interest rate environment is an input, right? The, the mm-hmm. debt service you are going to pay is an expense line item in that cost equation. And so I, I have gotten a lot of questions over the last year or so as rates have run up dramatically, 400 and 50 basis points, right? Uh, In a very short period of time. Um, Does it still make sense to invest in residential real estate? And my answer is, yeah, if the math works, right? If it doesn't work, then it doesn't. But like, I can't tell you what your investment hurdle should be. Mm -hmm. Mine could be very different from yours and that's okay. And, And when you think about owning rental properties, so, so I, it, it's funny, I, I've had a conversation with my kind of newer sales folks that a flip is um, basically taking all your profit 
within a 12-month period, whereas owning a rental, you're taking your profit over a much longer horizon, right? Because not only are you getting the cash flow from the rent, rental income stream, but you're also getting home price appreciation. And it might not happen all in the first year, right? It's it's a little bit over time and a little bit over time and a little bit over time. And you just have to do the math based on like what what is your return threshold. Um, and you got to be brutal. You got to be cold and calculating. You do. The one other thing I will say is assume everything's going to cost more. Yeah. I know this sounds really <laughs> trite. Assume everything's yeah. going to cost more and everything's going to take longer. Take longer. Uh, yeah. Like the 20% rule I think is absolutely, it's probably con- yeah. overly conservative, but like okay. it's probably going to happen. And what if it doesn't, you're in, a, you're, you're in a great place, right? Wasn't there a movie, The Money Pit, a Tom Hanks movie? Yes. With, uh, I love that uh, movie. Shelley Long, I want to say. It was. Uh, that where it was kind of this is you know here's here's the awful things that can happen. Oh um, yeah. How many divorces have? Uh, how many clients have gotten divorced? Because I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, I, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. I, I actually think um, <laughs> we we have friends who have this amazing house, but it needed like a big rehab, and the the husband said you know what like we're just going to buy a different house because if i have to go through like a 12 month rehab we will end up divorced <laughs> so i i think there's a there's a lot of truth to that <laughs> you mentioned uh interest rates mortgage rates does <laughs> the higher mortgage rate environment make it tougher though to get to that return i'm assuming it, it must how do you yeah do you it definitely creates that? thinner margins right yeah. and so the, the, Are there tips? Can you hedge against that? Can you fix? Can you can you work at least make that a little better through some you know? Well, so that's been that's what everybody's thinking is going to drive home prices down, right? So mm. if you think about mm. that math equation, if that that expense line item goes up by uh, not double, but let's say it goes up by twenty five or thirty percent, right? If you think about um, call it a year ago, I had customers being able to get interest rates at sub nine percent right some even sub sub eight and now they have to pay nine and a half ten eleven and a half right that like that that's a big impact in that yeah. line item but you're backing into then what can you pay for the property and so what ultimately occurs is that in theory the price you're willing to pay comes down so that you're still able to make that same margin I think people tend to stretch because they want the inventory and they want to do the deal. But um, if you don't stretch, then you probably just do fewer deals. Yeah. Yeah. We, you mentioned a while ago about how important technology is to your platform. Because it's obligatory, it's obligatory now, I have to ask you, are you using AI in what you do? Are you, are you we, planning on using we more do. AI We do. We use AI and, and machine learning, internal proprietary built um, mm-hmm. built stuff. And, and it's... Uh, it's interesting. It's interesting to see how um, the the learning piece, because I, I am not a, a co- computer science person. I am not an engineer. I, I come from, you know, kind of the business sales side person or kind of personality type and and focus. Um, I can I can build a mean model though. I will say, <laughs> um, but or financial model, but um, yeah. it, it's very interesting to to learn and see like the outputs of our data science teams and how they're yeah. h- how the models take in new data and adjust and and continue to iterate um it, it's pretty fascinating to to observe and see and like the impact has been is already like fairly dramatic in, in our business yeah it's it's a way to leverage and make us smarter and do things we didn't know we could do before so in that sense i think it's all positive i know there's lots of fear and and, and loathing surrounding ai yeah. but i think it, it, we'll, we'll get a handle on it I know we've all seen the. We just all saw the, all those movies. Terminator, <laughs> Terminator movies. I know it. They are scary. Terminator, or even it wasn't there. Isn't there one called AI? Wasn't it Robin Williams? Uh, you know what? There I was a movie like... called AI, but it was weird and sad and depressing and boring. I can't. Totally. I, I, can't, I think I did. I, see I even it. think about the um, what's the, the one where, uh, I can't think of it, but it would like spit out the ball, and then they'd go get the person. I think Tom Cruise was in it. I don't know. Oh, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. 
Anyways, I, sorry. We'll figure sorry it out. for the, the movie. Welcome to New Home Insights Movie Hour. A new, uh, yeah. It'll be a podcast spinoff we'll do. We'll do movies. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Let's, let's end with a minute or two on, on what's up next for, for Kiavi. Any, anything big, anything you, you, you might be thinking about it in terms of maybe economic expansion or into <laughs> different sectors? Yeah. Look, I think we, we continue to, to develop and introduce new products, new loan products, to meet sort of the evolving needs of, and strategies of our customers. And in this market, in, we think about inventory being very constrained or existing inventory. There's still a fair amount of opportunity for infill, like development projects, the last mm. few the last few lots in a home, in a home, oh, uh, okay. excuse me, like a subdivision. So yeah. I think we, we've started piloting some ground up construction stuff. I, I see us expanding there. We, we hear from our customers. They want to continue. They want to do those kinds of loans. They'd like to work with us um, rather than having to find another lender to do it with. So mm -hmm. those types of things, I think a lot of, I think a natural extension for many of our customers is also small multifamily repositioning, mm -hmm. right? Um, not that much different to fix a four unit than, a, you know, to fix mm -hmm. a six unit or a 10 unit, right? Um, and so I, I envision us evolving there too. Um, and then we have, you know, we have some interesting tech things on the, on the distant horizon that we're, we're working through, but, uh, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you, I think. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Luckily, lots of cool stuff happening. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I, so it sounds like you might even sort of the BTR world, the purpose built, built to rent world. You, you might lend on those kinds of communities that, that scale. You know, that would be something I would absolutely love to do. I I uh I I learned all about that and and kind of helped launch that uh that loan product in my prior company. Um it's so cool to go kick dirt and see the big yeah. earth moving and the lot development. It's just cool. Um so I, I think that's really great. We are busy and uh, yeah. with with kind of the things that are currently in our wheelhouse. That's not to say that it's not somewhere on the horizon, but uh, I, I think that would be great. Uh, I love that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you got to yeah. keep your foot in the throttle. I get it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. right yeah, we. You know, I think it's a time with the economy, right? Everybody's a little bit nervous. Don't don't be too. Um, too spread out. Don't don't get too overextended. I guess is the word I would have used. Yeah. Um. And really focus on, and I think this is this is for in real estate resi investors too. Whether you're a rental investor or a, a flipper, it's like, do the things you know and do them really well. Don't mm -hmm. get overextended. Don't ex don't stretch outside of what's um, known and true for you in your business model. And I think that that goes for a, a lot of what like how we're thinking about things for our, our company too. What are like the natural extensions versus, yeah. you know, pivoting wildly kind of in the next 12 months yeah. while we wait and see yeah. what the recession looks like. So you're not going to make one. movies about uh, sad AI, I'm assuming. That's probably not in the future. <laughs> not yet. No, no. Okay. That's, that's, probably, <laughs> that's probably good. Well, Stephanie, I really appreciate you coming on and tell us about what you do and, and also your take on the markets for the for Fix and Flip and the SFR space. It's been insightful as always. It's been a ton of fun. Thanks again for having me. Absolutely. This has been Dean Worley for the New Home Insights podcast. We'll catch up again in a couple of weeks. <laughs>